0: There are hundreds of amazing people in the TEDx universe, and we talk to a lot of them. If this is your first time to the show, welcome. We produce Hacking the Red Circle every week. You'll want to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Now, on with the show hey everybody welcome back to the show I am thrilled I, I got to meet our guest at Ted fest uh, when we were there earlier this year I'd like you to meet Craig Pfeiffer from TEDx mid-atlantic Craig welcome to the show thanks for having me mark I'm uh, I'm it's taken us a while to get get you on the schedule but I have been really looking forward to this conversation because dear listener um craig is not the organizer of the show we had uh we have the tedx mid-atlantic organizer is going to come up uh in your feed probably in a few weeks but i when i met craig at TEDfest, i said what do you what do you do he says tedx mid-atlantic so what do you do there he goes i manage the green room is, is that was that your official title do you have actually have an official title craig
1: I'm not sure any of us really have official titles, (laughs) Uh, but uh, that's what I've been doing for about the last five years.
0: Well, see, that was the other piece of it is that you've done that one job for five years, which makes uh, you like the king of green room people in TEDx land. And why don't you tell the because I've talked to people who don't know what a green room is. So why don't we start there and explain what a green room is?
1: Sure. Well, I believe the concept of a green room comes from theater, and uh, it would have been good if I had looked all of this up before <laughs> the interview today, but uh, I assume that there was one one or more green rooms that were traditionally green. But uh, in any case, it is the place where uh, the folks who are going to be in a show can relax, can gather uh, for a talk show. It might be where the guests uh, hang out and get refreshments for uh, the theater. It may be where VIP guests or family members can gather, or the actors themselves. And uh, so it fits well with the format of a TEDx event because we have speakers who need to prepare and need to relax. It also fits well because many TEDx venues are in theaters. And so there is a room that the theater also calls the green room. But even if the venue uh, where your event is doesn't have an official green room, it's any small room that can be used to set the right mood, set the right tone, and provide for the creature comforts that speakers need to get in the zone.
0: And tell me about the um, the the first conversation you had. It was probably with Dave, uh, who said, "Hey, Craig, we've got a job for you. We have got the perfect job for you." And they laid out that they needed actually a whole human to manage the green room. What was that conversation
1: like? Well, it wasn't quite so decisive. I think, like many of our volunteer roles, it evolved over time. And I wasn't the first person to do it. So I don't want to make it seem like I invented the role for our organization. (laughs) Uh, uh, But I think what had happened was in the first few years of the conference, it was something that um, different people did as they were available. As the conference became more uh, complex and there were more speakers and more things going on, uh, the people who had been managing that a little more directly in the past, were had had too many different things to do and so the volunteer role started to um to be distributed more um i attended tedxman atlantic for the first time in 2011 i just sat in the audience uh i didn't have any volunteer role and then on the back of our program it says if you'd like to volunteer email this address and that's what i did and um I really assumed that I would be carrying boxes or stuffing envelopes or whatever entry-level volunteers do. Um, But uh, in our organization, and as I've learned in many organizations, uh, everybody – has an important role to play there right. you you're, it's it's a uh i guess it's a meritocracy of sorts so yes, people who sure. um, have things to contribute uh quickly get put in places to contribute them so um i would have been happy to carry boxes and, and stuff envelopes but somebody asked me if i could um help do something that involved the green room and by the end of that day uh it seemed like a a really good fit. And by the end of the second day, I guess it seemed like a good fit for the other folks too. And so the next year, uh, when I came back in 2013, um, I took more of a lead role in doing that uh, particular function and uh, have repeated it ever since. So we've done uh, four conferences and two salons where I've been a volunteer, uh, plus that first one in 2011 that I just attended. So uh, the, I like to say that the green room is kind of half psychology and half logistics. Uh, sometimes I give different percentages. Sometimes it feels like it's 90-10 one way or the other. <laughs> um, but essentially, the, the green room is responsible for two things. The first is making sure that speakers are the best versions of themselves when it's time for them to go on stage. And second is making sure they actually find the stage and get on it at the right time. Now, there may be multiple people involved and the title of of the person who helps drag the speaker from the green room to the stage may not fall under the green room. In our case, it does fall under the green room. Um, but, But basically, the two ideas are take care of the speaker while they're in the green room and then make sure they get from the green room to the stage. And uh, so we could talk a little bit about what's involved in in each of those aspects.
0: So what I want to go back. I, you said that you also do two salons. How many live speakers do you have at your salons?
1: Uh, let's see. I I believe we we have in the neighborhood of ten to fifteen at a salon, and we have uh, around thirty five to forty at a full conference. Uh, we have uh, some talks that involve more than one person and the musical performances and uh, artistic performances could involve up to a couple of dozen people. Sure. Um, So in terms of the bodies that are involved, it could be anywhere up to maybe 75 people who, who wind up going through the green room to the stage, not to mention the the other volunteers that need to be managed in the green room and uh, various uh, other logistics. So,
0: Our astute listener picked up on something I got right there, which was 35 to 40 speakers at one of your events. Uh, I'm going to guess you guys, and I already know the answer, but you're a tier two event. You're a level two event. So you go, you span from uh, an evening into a day. So you've got room for a lot more talent.
1: Yes, we typically start in the afternoon or evening on Friday, and then we go all the way through Saturday. We also have a an evening social event uh, in between the two days, and we have a uh, closing reception. Uh, so we we have a lot of moving parts, a lot of people, um, and uh, you know, so it's it's important that. We, we, we nail the logistics of the speakers know, because they right? form the, the, the heart of the uh, event. But we also have a lot of other things going on at the same time. So part, part of my job is trying to make sure I don't bother the people doing other jobs, um, trying to put out my own fires before they get to uh, somebody else. What would you say? Well, give me an example
0: of a fire you might have to put out. I mean, you've been doing this well, for guess, five years. So, how do you still have fires? One would ask.
1: I guess the, ster- the stereotypical fire would be that a sp- the speaker can't be found. Uh, <laughs> you remember, remember that ha- half of the job here is to put the body on the stage. So, um, oh my f- god! Yes we ask our speakers to arrive well before the beginning of the session in which their talk will occur. Even if they're the last speaker in the session, we want to make sure we have everybody accounted for at the beginning of the session. Uh, not every speaker, uh, fulfills that request. Sometimes the speaker is, um, uh, I guess they're a little VIP, and they don't want to hang around. Sometimes the speaker is very nervous and goes in a corner somewhere, and I have to keep track of where that corner is uh, <laughs> to get them back. Uh, and sometimes they want to see friends or family sure, in maybe sure. somebody else who's speaking or somebody in the audience, and so they kind of duck in and, and forget to duck back out. We, of course, we have some guidelines and some requests that manage that process, but in the end, we, we don't physically restrain the speakers in the room. so... <laughs> Uh, occasionally they will wander off and I guess that would be the most uh, obvious kind of fire. Um, but we've had other situations where somebody needs to make a last minute change to their, their slides, uh, or they, they think they need to make a last minute but change. But don't they do slides. that
0: during rehearsal?
1: Well, I mean, they that's do. that's okay rehe- yeah.
0: during rehearsal, but not during a live show.
1: Well, we try to avoid that, and we try to um, encourage them to stick with what they rehearsed, both because we we know that people who stray from what they rehearse tend to run into uh, more nerves, but also because we, uh, as you're alluding to, we, we, we have trouble making a lot of changes to those slides yeah. in the moment. Yeah. That's that very risky. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, we have speakers who insist and we don't want to be in a situation of, of frazzling them at the last minute because they think their talk won't be successful without that change. Right. Um, I mean, we've, we've had some speakers who have asked for changes after they've been mic'd up and before they're waiting to go on stage. That's obviously a little extreme. But when somebody asks an hour before their talk, uh, even if it's the day of and not not uh, they're on a rehearsal day, we we try to be accommodating without kind of being enabling.
0: I'm, I'm going to suggest to our listener that, that you guys have earned the right to to, to have um, your mechanism, the workflow, that the training that it takes, so dialed that you can take a last minute request, but that's for like the the ninja producers. I think for first timers who are thinking about that, you want to lock your content the day before, and that's you know, there's got to be you know an act of God or something uh, to get. For, for I know for our show, and we're pretty good at that stuff. We just like we make a big deal about we need it ahead of time. We need it on time. We need it. We want to go through that because to your point, there's things like transitions. There's all kinds of things that they haven't rehearsed yet uh, that can pull you into trouble. I've got a, you know, I'm I'm curious. Um, cause I know how our backstage works. So you, you're on a communication, you've got an intercom unit that you're wearing, that you're talking to a stage manager and who's talking to the booth. Is, am I guessing that correct?
1: Uh, actually we don't uh, do what? anything quite that sophisticated. One of our challenges in our venue is that, uh, we, we get very poor, uh, very poor reception. Uh, the green room in our venue, which we love in general, uh, it's a it's a professional theater that's the home of the Washington Shakespeare Company and mm. so uh, it's it's a very nice facility and it has multiple um, levels and a lot of different assets for us to use for the different um, parts of the event registration and receptions and um, and, and the green room of course but the green room is on the other side of the building from the stage and three floors below.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So that's one reason why our green room may have a little bit more logistics involved than some others, because yeah. we have to physically move people a pretty significant distance and uh, do it in a way that doesn't frazzle them or upset their wardrobe or uh, anything else. But but anyway, we, we haven't really tried using um, um, headphones and uh I guess because we, we've had some of the same people working together for the last few years, we have yeah. a very good flow, very yeah. good connection. And I think instead of headphones, we, we use volunteers. So I have uh, runners just, that go back run, and forth.
0: Exactly. How many runners yeah. do you have? Do you have a dozen? Uh, we
1: ch- – No, 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 no. We just have two runners and then a volunteer in the green room itself and then me. So what what basically winds up happening is I come up with a plan for the session. I assign each uh, speaker to a runner so that there's somebody who Uh. has a sense of ownership and accountability for one of the speakers. I do a lot of movement myself, but if all goes well, it's really the runners that are moving back and forth between the green room and the stage. And then there's always somebody in the green room who doesn't move so that uh, there's a sense of continuity and Mm -hmm. uh, that we don't leave the green room unattended. So we try to align those people to the schedule. And if there's a need for me to go up or if I just am interested in a particular speaker, I've gotten to know somebody who I would like to stick with, then uh, we just shuffle a little – bit around but we try to stay we we leapfrog if you think about there's somebody speaking right now on stage there's somebody who's mic'd up and then there's somebody who's going to be going up next and so we always try to have those three positions filled yeah and that really means we don't have to talk to anybody on the stage unless we're not going to fill one of those positions on time
0: we call that the your runners we call them wranglers And uh, we've got speaker wranglers, and we've got a speaker concierge, and we we kind of do that same thing because to your your point, you said at the very beginning of the show that you want to make sure that the speakers are the best versions of themselves. And we think of that as removing as much friction as possible, you know, everything uh, that you do. So on that thread, um, what do you think you do to go out of your way to... When you said it was half psychology and half logistics, what do you do that's unique that is specifically geared towards uh, the psychological comforts of the speaker?
1: Well, I can't say whether it's unique, and I have a feeling it's it's probably not. But I think the, the very first thing that I do and that I ask my volunteers to do is to just read the situation. Uh, you have to kind of get a sense for whether a given person would like to chat, would like to be left alone. You know, some people need to talk about anything but their talk mm. to be distracted. Some people need to be in complete silence so they can rehearse it in their head or even in another room. Some people have props or musical instruments and and they need that kind of environment. Some people would like to talk about their talk but not actually rehearse their talk. Um, And some people are just fine and and don't really need anything at all. Um, So, you know, you combine that uh, consideration that everybody has different needs with the, uh, fact that some of our speakers are, are, are fairly VIP, and they're all very cool in different ways, or we wouldn't be having them as speakers in the first place. So some volunteers, especially younger volunteers, but not exclusively younger volunteers can get a little star And it's important that, uh, each of the speakers be approached, uh, and not the other way around there's always time after the talks for high fives and autographs and photos and 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 pretty much any speaker is going to be thrilled to do pretty much anything after their talk is over but before they give their talk it's very important to make the moment about them and to read the situation and give them what they need which is different for everybody
0: so people that um, are not familiar with uh, TEDx Mid-Atlantic, there's a lot of people who I've interviewed who, like, you're the show they all want to take the magic carpet to to go see because you've got such a great reputation. But for we've got listeners from 72 different countries. So um, give us an example of some of the VIP guests you've had.
1: We've had Colin Powell. We've, we have had um, Governor Mark Warner. We had... Uh, uh, Senator now, Mark Warner, Governor Martin O'Malley, um, and, and those those folks sometimes come with a little bit of an entourage or there are certain um, security or other logistics uh, mm. speakers who um, have VIP reputations, there are speakers who are – Shooting for VIP status, and so we, you know, it's it's not it's not so much that um, that different speakers get treated differently on the basis of their status. It's just that a given volunteer may be drawn to a given speaker, and so mm. if you walk into a room and there's your idol right. uh, from from whatever uh, direction, well, you know, I think it's great when we can give volunteers an opportunity to interact with the speakers, right. and I'll I'll come back to that. Re- remind me because I have an important point about that, but at the same time, we have To make sure that again the moment is for the speaker and not for um, anybody else uh, until the the talk is successful and then you know it's 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 really a much different atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that it would be well. There's no secrets because we you know your volunteers know who the speakers are. They know who the lineup is. But if they find that. Just through the alignment of the stars, they get matched up with someone who's a hero to them in their eyes only that I could see would be actually could be pretty spectacular. That just makes it a real Ted moment, right? That no one ever captured on film.
1: Absolutely and and I don't really get to see the talks uh from the audience anymore. Uh I it's been several years <laughs> since I actually saw a talk from the perspective of the audience. Um and and the volunteers are are missing out on that as well. So I think it is it is good to give them the opportunity to interact with the speakers behind the scenes so that they get some sense of Right. what happened at this event that they that they um took the time to, to help put on. Um, but that just has to be done in a way that's deferential to the speakers. Now, I go through when I was talking before about matching up the runners to the speakers for each uh, session. I, I absolutely let them choose if, they're, if they have a particular oh. interest in getting to know somebody. I mean, there's no reason to um, randomly assign people, especially because there are professional interests, there are yep. Um, yep. Uh, personal interests, there are you know funny family connections, and that's all fine. My point is only that volunteers need to read the situation and, and act in the way that, that the speaker needs in that moment before they uh, – become too starstruck. And I sometimes have to remind myself of this too. I mean, I I like getting photos with the speakers too, but that happens later. (laughs) That doesn't happen first. Uh, And the the speakers are rarely the same person after the talk as they are before the talk. And I'm sure many of my colleagues around the world can identify with that. We have people who are extremely frazzled uh or they're high energy they're hyper that's their version uh or they're catatonic that's their version and then they give the talk of course it's great and then it's they're just completely different people they're just delighted and and on top of the world and they're getting tweets and texts already and uh, and so the the walk the walk downstairs is much more um much more pleasant than the walk upstairs in many cases. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of speakers let out a lot of emotion too. And some of them are pretty, um, uh, uh, they're, they're not necessarily on top of the world yet until they come back down to earth. Mm, And, um, I, I, I've had speakers who are are pretty nervous on the way downstairs until they kind of get settled again and until they get the high fives from their fellow uh, speakers waiting in the green room and the volunteers. I, I had a speaker uh, cry on my shoulder in the stairwell, uh, who did an amazing job. But it's it's just a it's an uh, uh, an outlet of um, emotion after the talk. There's just a lot that um, that's been bottled up for weeks or months. And, um, so it's not surprising that people get emotional and, uh, as volunteers, we need to make sure that we can help them come back downstairs literally and, and, figuratively and give them the support they need, make sure that they're not embarrassed by their emotions and give them right. validation. Right, right. Um, you know, we, we try to be very validating that, that the talk went well, um, but I also point out to volunteers that they need to have some frame of reference for the talk before they go overboard on compliments. Uh, occasionally, things do go wrong in talks. We don't want somebody who uh, trips and falls off the stage to be told at the end, wow, you did an amazing <laughs> you job. You nailed it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the easiest way to avoid that is, is by Tying that runner to that speaker, so that runner is standing behind stage. They deliver the speaker to the uh, audio technician who mics the speaker. Yep. They wait there during the talk, and then they receive the person. They're they're usually the very first person to see the speaker mm. when they come off stage. Mm. They high five or hug oh, or yeah, whatever is appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that also makes sure that that the mic comes back off so that they get. <sighs> Grabbed before they run out. Um, But then that person, the runner, walks the speaker back downstairs. And so having that personal connection, I think over the years, it's been very helpful to do. That's such
0: the care and feeding of speakers is such a big part of it, which is why thank you so much for talking to us, because that is, um, I think it's something that people don't pay enough attention to or don't understand that they should pay attention to it. Um, I was talking uh, with TEDx Fargo with Greg, and he said, "I mean, his his superpower is is thinking that they've got to be the best. They've got to treat speakers better than any TEDx in the world because who wants to go to Fargo, right? It was his <laughs> point, and and getting so the reputation precedes them. When you're asked to go to Fargo, oh my gosh, of course I want to go." because it's so amazing and and what they do is is unique to them so this this idea of I love having someone attached to them now is that runner attached do you do a dress rehearsal the day before <laughs>
1: We offer rehearsal opportunities. They're not mandatory. In our case, we have a lot of speakers who just practically speaking will will not be able to come in a day before. Um, but we do have a full day of rehearsal opportunities. So do. Right. And the volunteers are not usually there for that because most of the volunteers can't take two or three days off to, uh, to do that. You know, if you if you think about the length of the conference and then add on the rehearsal in advance, that's a big commitment for a given person. And many of our volunteers are are actually high school and college students huh? um, some of uh, some of whom actually organize their own events and are learning um, about uh, oh. uh, the some of the, uh, the the tips and tricks so we think it's very important to give them that behind- the-scenes opportunity but we also know they can't necessarily come in for three full days so there are a few of us who tend to be the core group of volunteers on the rehearsal day and I try to get to know as many of the speakers as I can the day before yes so that there's a little bit of, of nice to see you again uh, we have a speaker dinner, and uh, if it works out that that speakers can come to that. Our I I, I understand that some speaker dinners are fairly far in advance of the uh, event. Ours tend to be closer to the event because we have a lot of people coming in from out of town. Right. So that's also right. an opportunity for people to put faces to names. But uh, the runners themselves are are not usually they don't usually get to meet the speaker until the the right before the session. Oh, there's one runner I forgot to mention before who we actually have somebody who stands at the registration area and receives the speakers as soon as they walk Uh. through the front doors. And that's to make sure that, first of all, they get that VIP treatment from the very beginning. We we want them to feel very welcomed and and feel good about themselves. Um, But it's also to make sure that they get to the green room in the first place, which I haven't mentioned yet, but that is a... um, Well, I guess I mentioned. Well, it's it's yeah, three floors down,
0: and yeah, it's it's on the opposite side. So I'm sure it's in a big complex, and it's not easily found.
1: Right. So well, and plus we don't really want huge signs that say uh, "awesome speaker hangout" this way when (laughs) when we have a thousand people (laughs) milling about the building. Um, So the so the runner makes sure that the that the speaker gets down to the green room, and we have a dedicated person do that during each session because that person then can't be the a constant presence in the green room and once the session starts that person can't be a runner to the stage obviously we want all the speakers to be there when the session starts but sometimes they come in a little bit later so the the the, the two opportunities for getting lost are getting to the green room in the first place and then, of course, we have to keep the person once they get to the green room. But we've had speakers before who just go and somehow manage to get their speaker badge without anybody noticing uh, that it's a speaker badge and then they go sit in the audience and they're just very dutiful for attendees. <laughs> right. And they're just sitting in the theater with everybody else. And so right. I appreciate their humility, but at the same time um, you know, we need we need for people to say, yes. I'm a speaker. And so we try to intercept them within inches of their arrival to keep them from wandering off. And now if they get their hours in advance or the day before, obviously we're not going to make them stay in the green room the whole time, but we at least want to check in, get their whereabouts, put the tracking collar on them and that sort of thing.
0: (laughs) I was, in my mind, I was calling it a TEDx tether, which was this magical red leash that you had for them. Do you do, um, do you provide hair and makeup and other creature comforts?
1: Well, we haven't actually done hair and makeup in the past, but we did have somebody ask about it last year, and we were able to find one of our volunteers actually had professional uh, theatrical makeup experience, and so we were actually able to arrange that for the speaker who asked and for other speakers who uh, were interested. Uh, this year, I actually talked to somebody who I met at a. Um, at one of our salons, who was just the friend of a speaker. And when I saw what her business card said, I asked her if she might be interested in providing that service to speakers um, in general, and, and she was interested. So I don't know how that's going to work out, or she's willing to donate that, or if we would have to pay for that. Most speakers are not going to, to need or even want that. But for the ones who do, I, I think it is a good touch. But we do provide a lot of different kinds of snacks, and uh, we try to go get some things that are healthy and uh, but also, you know, tasty. Uh, we, we have coffee. We have water. Uh, there's comfortable furniture. There are separate spaces for people who need to practice musical instruments or singing or for people who want to practice their talk out loud. Um, some people want to go stand in a corner quietly without even practicing. They just want to be alone. Uh, we even had one speaker at our uh, one of our events who asked if there was a place he could take a power nap. And I was not excited about that at all. Uh, I, I actually thought that was a pretty terrible idea, but I figured, you know, if, if this is something that's part of his himself. routine, then yeah. I'm not going to mess it up. But he, he walked in wearing a suit, and he uh, we, we actually did have a cot in one of the uh, dressing rooms in the theater, and uh, he went and took a 20-minute nap in his suit and came out looking like a million bucks and going on stage 20 minutes later. And I think that really speaks to the idea that everybody needs something different. And the best thing we can do is to give people what they need. And some people, I guess, need to take a power nap.
0: I want to go back to the makeup for a second, because um, that's something we've had on every show. We've in this last show, we had three crews so that we, you know, people could come in and we could get them all done pretty quickly because we look at it as the um, we're preparing them for video. So we find people who actually have video makeup experience uh, and to, and have them donate their services. And they're super nice about that. And we, you know, let the world know how fantastic they are, but we get hair and makeup and, and they just feel it. It's something about, it puts them in a state like this is a real thing, right? You know, we're getting hair, right. we're getting makeup, we're you know, we're going to go out there. This is, this is not just community theater, right? It's a, it's a right. big deal what we're doing. Um, what's you've done this for five years now, and I'm curious what the biggest surprise is or was at your last show.
1: I think in general the biggest surprise or lesson I've learned, if if you're talking about that kind of surprise, um, is that every speaker is nervous. Uh, and I know that may sound obvious, uh, but there was a point at which it was not obvious for me. And I, I went from the audience to the green room. And when I sat in the audience, I thought these people are all amazing. They're all, uh, professional speakers speakers. Uh, this show is a $5 million event that's run by people who work full-time year-round on this. Oops. And I, you know, when you look behind the curtain, literally, uh, you realize that this is an event that's run by 100 volunteers, most of whom who, who haven't met each other and have no physical interaction with each other during the year. Uh, we do a lot of work together online Uh, we do have some in-person meetings but it's a very distributed kind of a of uh organization not a lot of um of people um not not a lot of uh people calling shots as much as just facilitating conversations and so um uh the work that we do produces a very professional event but it's it's not an event that's run by uh full-time paid people year-round now likewise our speakers are often, maybe usually not professional speakers. Right, and we right. try, like like most organizers do, we try to find those gems that nobody's yep. heard yep. of yet. Yep. And uh, the people who talk for a living, I figured, well, they'll be fine. And then maybe the people who we're plucking out of obscurity will not be. Well, the the lesson I learned is you just never know. The The people who don't necessarily talk for a living are... All things being equal, going to be more nervous, but the people who do still are going to be nervous, and I think that's because we have a very particular brand. We have a brand that requires extreme polish, and uh, everybody to fit a certain mold in terms of the the look and the feel and the timing, and we literally tell people that they should give the talk of their lives. Now, that is a very intimidating thing to say to somebody. And although we feel that we are delivering on that for the audience, we also have to keep in mind that that can be very intimidating to the speaker. And that's why so many of the the things that we're talking about today are important. We are putting these uh, speakers up on a pedestal and some people get a little bit dizzy up there and we need to make sure that we that we're there for them now i don't i don't want to to name names or give examples of different nervous speakers i think that you know what happens in the green room needs to stay in the green room
0: yep, yep,
1: yep, yep, yep. um but uh, but I'll give a few um, general examples. that we, we had one speaker who has been discussing his area of expertise for decades, and he's a, a nationally well-known speaker. And he said, this is the first time I've ever had to talk for that long with no notes. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. even somebody who uh, – it doesn't need the notes that knows that they're there and to ask somebody to give up and give a talk with, with no notes and hopefully not holding index cards and hopefully not looking at a prompter, uh, which of course we always try to avoid that can, that can be very different for people even who talk for a living. And so that's why rehearsals are very important and coaching is very important. Um, But of course I, I, uh, I receive the speakers as they are and not always as I hope they will be or they hope they will be based on whatever rehearsing they've been able to do, based on whatever happened to their flight that day, based on whatever <laughs> happened to their family or their job that day. And so, you know, people get frazzled and you just yeah. have to kind of be there for them. But but the point is that w- w- we are the ones who are are pumping up these speakers mm-hmm. to um, to be so amazing. And so we bear some responsibility for helping ensure that they are as amazing as we know they can be. You said you said that we
0: have a particular brand, and when you say we, do you mean TEDx and TED has a particular brand, or do you feel like Mid-Atlantic takes that even a couple of steps further in terms of professionalism?
1: Well, I think there are two different um, ways to answer that question. What I meant was TED and TEDx. Every single right. okay. one of our thousands of events around the world yeah. has a particular brand, and and that is, um, you know, if nothing else, it's written down in very clear rules <laughs> yes, that we all is. have to follow. And yes. and that is um, that is why people love TED and TEDx because they know what they're going to get, mm. uh, and they know that it's going to be an amazing product. And that's why we have to stick to those rules so that we make sure to live up to that brand. Uh, now, obviously, different events have different levels of experience. Um, if you're a first-year event, you may have a few more rough spots than if you've been doing it for a while. Right. If you have right. the uh- – if you have the good fortune to be able to sell tickets and and you know buy snacks and um, and buy T-shirts or whatever, um, if you have um, sponsors, uh, yes, there could certainly be a brand associated with an individual event. And I would like to think that we do a nice job. But I'll tell you one thing that I um, that I said to myself when we were at TED Fest and I was meeting all of these amazing uh, organizers from around the world, some of whom have very difficult um, challenges uh, in putting on their events. Um, we, we all have amazing content. We all uh, embody the brand. And it doesn't matter whether you are putting on your first event with 50 members of the audience or whether you're filling a soccer stadium uh, with thousands <laughs> of people, uh, you know, we, we're all part of the same community yep, and we're all yep. um, uh, embodying that same brand. I think uh, the other thing, if, and I, I don't mean this with any offense to Ted or Ted's um, speakers, but when we were watching those talks together at Ted Fets, I, I kept thinking to myself, uh, we have the same quality speakers at, at each of our events as well. And you know, it's just uh, maybe we don't we don't have as fancy of a goodie bag to give out, uh, but we we are delivering amazing content as well, Uh, and that and that all goes back to the idea that uh, these uh, conferences, uh, these uh, salons, these other events are really about. The the content they're not about the logistics and as long as the content is strong and you follow the rules that Ted has very clearly laid out, um, then uh, I think we're all going to have that high uh, standard that we're uh, embodying.
0: In addition to that, I think that part of, one of the listener, if you've not done a TEDx yet or you're 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 doing your first one, you know you can only go to 100 people until you go to a qualifying event. And I think the reason there, one of the reasons there, is to get a sense of how TED does it, and what what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, you know, when you've got the full you know the full effect, whether it's TED Global or TED Fest or or any one of these other events that we go to, um, I I'm reminded of uh, a guy who he was I think it was our first. It was in uh, 2010. 10, 10 10 10. We did TEDx American Riviera. And one of our sponsors and one of the guests, uh, was a Tedster uh, who we knew he from Santa Barbara and we ran into him in, in Monterey. And he said to me at the after party said, Mark, that was as good as any single day at Ted that I've ever attended. And so that's to your point. You know we 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 shouldn't ever feel like the work we're doing is is any less diminished it's as important and can be as good in the mind of the audience in fact i don't know if you get this sense that i don't think the audience as much as we tell them discerns the difference between ted and tedx when they come to our event they feel like they were at ted would you would do you get that vibe too
1: yeah, that's certainly the semantics I think the public uses, that, that they use TED and TEDx interchangeably. And uh, I, I, I see a lot of TEDx speakers who say, I gave a TED talk. Oh, all um, of them. You know, all I, of I don't them. know. I don't know. I don't know exactly <laughs> what the folks in New York feel about that, that kind of talk. But, you know, it, it, you're right that um, if we do this correctly, we are we are all achieving the same high yeah. standards. Um, and so I don't, I don't uh, mind the fact that people say they gave a TED talk, because I think I think Ted wants for TEDx talks to have that same standard as well. Uh, so we we're very fortunate that we've had several of our videos uh, on TED.com and some that have made the the top uh, in terms of uh, viewership. And uh, so we we've we have some folks from our stage who are are definitely known throughout the TED community. But I think it's also important that people keep in mind that. The the audience is really the primary messenger for yep. the talk, and yep. whether you have a large event or a small event, or whether your videos ever make it onto TED, the folks who attended will still carry that message. And the whole point of TED is ideas worth spreading. Yep. That spreading doesn't have to be done a million people at a time. That can be done one at a time. And oftentimes, the message is even more powerful when it's communicated person to person. And um, so uh, we each have that opportunity, regardless of the size of our events or the level of exposure we wind up receiving.
0: Yeah, you uh, I mean, to that point, you have enjoyed success with your speakers and it is about the content. It's not necessarily the person. They were great ideas because. Some talks make it on to TED.com from, you know, really small events. I mean, I'm thinking of TEDx Puget Sound. Love those guys. And Simon Sinek came out of that event, right? It was a, a small event. And so as organizers, one of the things that I think in the back of our mind, we're always hoping that one of our speakers makes it to the to the big stage. Right. And we... I think we use that when we're coaching to say it's it's about the idea and it's about how well you communicate the idea and how unique the idea is because just doing the math, 3,600 events in 2016, an average of – you know, 12 to 18, in your case, you know, 30 talks, that's 120 new videos a day that are getting uploaded. So to stand out above that, it's it's a lot of things need to be aligned for that to happen. So that's why you want to have great AV, you want to have all the things that all the logistical parts. So you said, you know, it's get the psychology right, but also get the logistics right. So that that idea has the chance of getting out there and being seen and spread because, um, there wasn't weird audio that made it so you couldn't listen for more than three minutes, or there wasn't a distracting stage design that that kept you from being focused. There's all those things conspire to make a great video or not. I want to ask you um, as we we wrap up. You've been so generous with your time. Um, what's for someone who is an organizer who's you know now thinking about this, like the care and feeding of of our speakers. What's the biggest dragon that you think they're going to encounter or that you encounter that you're constantly trying to slay?
1: I think it's just the speaker's concern that uh, this is too much for them or they're not ready or they're they're not going to be successful. Um, Public speaking is commonly cited as as uh, sometimes the number one fear that people have, and it's not a natural thing to do. We, we don't have uh, opportunities in our daily lives to stand on a mountaintop and, uh, mm. and talk to the mm. masses, and so we, we, sh- we need to recognize that people need support to do something like this. There are two things that I uh, tell speakers when they're nervous, and I don't think that these are original Things that I came up with necessarily, but they're, they've been extremely effective. They work. The, the first is uh, that I remind the speaker that nobody knows what they meant to say. They only know what the speaker actually said, and they think it's great. And uh, this is a revelation to a lot of speakers, huh. as simple as it might sound, because when when you're giving a talk that you've rehearsed over and over again and you forget a word, you, you, it's all you can think about. You know that mm, you forgot mm, that mm, word. Mm. You, you picked that yeah. word. You carefully crafted it. You, you ruled out four other alternatives. <laughs> and the, the point is that the audience has no idea, right. especially if it was a you know a, an adjective or kind of an extra word. But even if it was... A, even if it was an important word structurally, uh, people just gloss right over it. Uh, you can't leave out three or four words in a row. You can't you can't leave out the middle of your entire talk. But if you <laughs> if you forget something, uh, the audience probably will have no idea whatsoever. And they're, and they're, they judge you on the basis of what they see and hear, and not what is written down in your script. They will never know what that is. And this is actually, I think, an important point for anybody who does any sort of presentations, whether it's just a meeting at work or in a, a, a place where you volunteer or if it's the talk of your life. Uh, the second thing I always remind the speakers is that the audience is rooting for them. Yep. We yep. have people who sign up as soon as possible, when the tickets come out every year, uh, we have people who uh, stand in line, especially for the salons which are free. We have people who camp out to get in. Uh, we have people who are so excited about either the the brand or the individual speakers or or some combination um, that it, this is the best audience you could speak in front of.
0: Uh, I know. These are right.
1: Very happy, very smart uh, people um, who. Um, who are excited about what they're about to see. And that goes a long way, too. Um, so uh, these are not people who some judge has ordered to attend community <laughs> service uh, who you have to win over. These are people who are you've pretty much already won over by being on the program. So the combination of those two things, nobody knows what you meant to say and the audience is rooting for you, um, I, I have found are very, very powerful uh, reminders. And um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that your – demeanor uh, rubs off on other people. And I I first heard this advice when I was reading about how to throw a dinner party. And it it says that when you're stressed out, when you're running around, your guests will be stressed out too. And so when you're you're hosting a party, you need to project that same calm demeanor that you want your uh, guests to have. Now that's even more important for a talk like uh, like hours where uh, if you are frazzled the speakers will be frazzled and that's the last thing you want in the talk so, um, I guess one reason why the green room has been a good fit for me is that I, I'm very level-headed and I'm just very calm, even when um, all hell is breaking loose. I, I may feel that, but apparently I don't show it. And uh, I guess my advice for other green room managers would be to try to project that same level of cool-headedness and confidence, even if things are going wrong. Uh, you don't, you don't have to make that clear to everybody around you. <laughs>
0: What's that the grace under pressure? right, um,
1: I, right exactly. Um, and and tell, tell your volunteers that too, um, and and model it because your volunteers will also right. act the way that you do. now I, I keep saying my volunteers, of course I'm a volunteer <laughs> also, but these are I'm talking about the, but you're the other volunteers assigned. You're to them. a lead. Yeah. So Craig, what, you know, what, Craig,, what's your day job? I'm the director of communications for the city of Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, So I'm somebody who does a good amount of public speaking and who who talks for a living. Um, But I've contemplated my hypothetical TED talk just like a a lot of us probably have. Of course, of course. And it intimidates me too. Uh, And so I know that if I'm somebody who's been – Speaking in public for 20 years, uh, I've given over 100 conference presentations and, and hundreds of media interviews. And if I would be nervous about giving the talk of my life, I can only imagine how um, how others might feel. And and I, you and I talked at TED Fest about this. Um, the, the idea that some of our speakers um, tend to be—well, uh, I'll go ahead and say divas—they can be a little, a bit of a handful. Yep. And and what what you and I were talking about was the idea that 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 is is that could be their personality all the time. I don't know. I, I don't know most of the speakers year round, but I have a feeling for a lot of people, it's their coping mechanism for right, the right. stress that they're feeling at the time. Yeah. And. I told you that when I first started volunteering, I thought I might just be carrying boxes, and I've come to think of of taking speakers as they are, dealing with their diva niche or whatever else might come out, is just a different version of carrying boxes. I'm I'm carrying something <laughs> for them that they they may not be the most proud of uh, in the future, but uh, it's a contribution that I can make. It's something I can do to help that person be the best version of themselves. I'm not I'm not um, Marrying that person, I'm not moving in with them. I'm not hiring them for a job. I'm I'm trying to uh, give them the best experience they can for the next couple of hours in exchange for the best talk they can give. And so I can let a lot go. I can uh, be very accommodating in terms of people's personalities because it, there's really no cost to me. And right. if is it's the contribution that i'm making to this event that i love and in exchange they they come out better and they are so grateful after
0: i want to end it right there you could drop the mic buddy because that was that was (laughs) great i the, the way you just kept it up i mean your gift back right to them it's as you said in the beginning, you're managing the psychology and the logistics, but the psychology for them and being able to read them, that was a consistent thread through this whole conversation, which is just being very, very present, right, and really listening and knowing that it is not about you, it's all about them, and how do we get them, as you say, uh, to give the talk of their life? We we call it um, high-stakes, short-form communication. And to your point, you said earlier that, you know, everyone's nervous. I have yet to see someone no matter how accomplished they are. You step onto the red circle. It's different than any other talk you're going to give in your life. And Craig, thank you so much for giving us that insight and that background into what you do and how you help a crew of 100 volunteers make a a wildly successful event. Now, my my last question for you is going to be, um, if, I can take that red circle and turn it into a magic carpet and fly you to a TED where you could actually sit and and watch the TEDx. Uh, which TEDx are we flying you to? <laughs>
1: uh, well, you know, I, uh, I I met so many great people at TED Fest and I want to go to all of their events. <laughs> and I've, I've heard you say that to other people who have invited you too. Um, I. uh, I got to know a, a great organizer uh, from uh, Slovenia, and I've been excited oh, wow. to stay in touch with them and to see if maybe there's something that we can do to help each other um, over the next couple of years. So uh, I, I'd like to think that I might be visiting Slovenia soon. Uh, I met a great organizer from Siberia, and I think that there's something wow. very um, uh, there's something great about the idea uh, uh, that um, a- any location in the world, no matter how seemingly remote it might yep, be, yep. Uh, can-, can be on the map just as equally as any other event through these great ideas and through through these videos and these talks. Of course, one day I'd love to attend TED itself, um, but like I said, I think that, that what we're doing, what, what you and I and our colleagues around the world are doing is right up there with what happens at TED.
0: Craig, thank you so much um, for uh, joining us and sharing all that wisdom and best to you and your teams uh, in your upcoming event. Thanks so much for joining us
1: on Hacking the Red Circle. Thank you, Mark. This has been great.
0: Thanks for listening to Hacking the Red Circle. Have an idea for a guest for the show? Or would you like to tell us your TEDx story? Just drop me a note in an email to mark at hackingtheredcircle.com. Please be sure to rate, write, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Makes a huge difference. And share the show with your team as we seek to grow our audience around the world. Until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for Hacking the Red Circle.